This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is August 15th, 2022. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the legendary Simon Belanger. Simon, at any moment, you may have to sprint off this call. Yeah, yeah. And and you know that full well. I know that, yeah. It's definitely a risk. So we're uh, recording this one a bit earlier than we usually do just to have some extra episodes ready to go. But this one will be up to date. It'll be current stuff. So you guys will, you know, we're not talking about things that happened four weeks ago. No, it is all current stuff. But at any moment, Simone's getting the call off to the hospital with his wife. Today, we are talking about the US CPI number. I also, I don't know if you saw this, the Bank of Canada did a long Twitter thread today. Oh, I didn't see about that. <laughs> explaining inflation. Oh, shoot. I should have sent it to you. I can send you the link here when you're talking, but it was quite funny. I, of course, trolled them and wrote, which in turn wrote this. But yeah, then we're going to talk about Brookfield, Disney, Canadian earnings. You got Cineplex on the end yeah, here too? Yeah, I thought it'd be a, a good one. I don't think one. we've talked about Cineplex in a while. Yeah, I thought it'd be a good one to look at, especially it's one of the names that was the most affected by lockdowns. So just see how they're doing. Yeah. Spoiler alert, they're doing better than last year, but you'll have to wait and listen to the end to see how they're doing compared to 2019. Oh, goodness me. Okay. All right. Kick it off here with CPI for us. Yeah, so the U.S. released its CPI figures for July last week. So it was 8.5% year over year. And of course, if there's some new listeners, CPI is just an official government metric called the Consumer Price Index that measures inflation. Now, if you think that's still high, that's because it is. The market, though, loved it, and it's been mostly up, I think, pretty much every single day since then. Since they released it, the market was really expecting higher CPI than the one that was released. Well, first, of course, it was lower than the 9.1% experience in June. So there are some good news in this number. It was flat on the sequential basis, so meaning month over month compared to the previous increase in June. That's compared to a 1.3% increase from May to June. So it's kind of nice to see it flat on a month-to-month basis. And although gas was up 44% year-over-year, it was actually down 7.7% on a sequential basis. So we're really seeing some good news when especially it comes on the sequential basis here. And the market is seeing this as a potential sign that inflation may have peaked in the U.S., Now, there's a lot of other things. The price of some commodities are also going down aside from oil here. I think, personally, it's a little bit too early to celebrate. Let's see, you know, let's give it probably till the end of the year to celebrate whether we've reached peaked inflation or not because there's a couple of components, definitely some red flags still on the release. Food was up 10.9% and 1.1% on a sequential basis, so still very high. And again, this is a necessity, so it does affect everyone. The second one here, shelter, which was up 5.7%. It might sound reasonable, but CPI captures what households are paying right now for shelter. So because of the tight housing and rental markets, there is a strong case to be made here that this metric will increase in the upcoming months especially when you have renters rents are coming due landlords are taking advantage of that to increase the rent and in the u.s depending on the state there's not the same type of high limitations that we have in most provinces in canada so like i said i think there's definitely some good but there's i think it's also very early to celebrate that inflation is coming down. We just need to see what happens in the next few months. But of course, I think it's just a reinforcement that markets will be affected a lot in the short term by this kind of macro stuff. But long term, it shouldn't matter too much. I think it's really important to remember that and not get to one way or another positive or pessimistic, depending on just one month of figures. It's so funny. It's like, oh, it's really high, but 
slower than last yeah. month, right? Like the, the market's just looking for one positive like news thing, right? On this topic. And so I'm pretty sure the market had like a huge day when this came out. I forget yeah, what it was, it was, but like every everything was Yeah, up. as soon yeah. as the release came out, you can see it's funny because oftentimes the Fed will release the new interest rates or you have these measures. And especially, I think the Fed interest rates usually happens around two. And you can see a clear demarcation with when the news comes <laughs> out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's too good. All right, let's move on to some earnings. Canadian darling Brookfield Asset Management reported their second quarter, and it was a good one, especially for the asset management side of the business. Record inflows sitting on $111 billion in cash, which is the largest cash pile they've ever ended a quarter with. They did generate $1.4 billion in funds from operations, but that was actually down about $200 million from this time last year. Now, here's a quote from the CFO. We remain on track to complete the distribution to shareholders and listing of a 25% interest in our asset management business by year end. So they've hinted at this and they now have confirmed, yes, this is happening full steam ahead, right? Like there's no reason for us not to do this and we're going to be pursuing this. Fee-bearing capital was up to $392 billion, which contributed a 21% increase in fee-related earnings. So getting close to about $400 billion in capital that they manage for their investors that they collect fees on. So fee-bearing capital just means money that they're collecting and expense ratio on year after year. And it's a high margin recurring revenue. I always say that the the fee bearing capital is like closer to SaaS than it is like another type of business, right? Because it has all those really great characteristics. I have a good acronym. So ASS, Asset as a Service. (laughs) (laughs) I I think we're onto something there. And you know what? When you find a good acronym, you, you got to run with it. So our next business event, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> here we go. But yes, I, I like that As, asset management as a service. They closed the acquisition of American National for $5.1 billion. That That's the insurance company, right? I think over the past 12 to 18 months, they've they've really spun, like they've had more focus on insurance as a, as a business. You know, they're the Brookfield Reinsurance Partners thing. 750 million in asset under management is today's number on the bottom of their statements. Their fleet of assets are highly cash generative, inflation resistant, and they have inflation linked like price ladders linked in them. So all is well for Flatten team on that front. Now, in the short term, the most exciting line item here is the asset management spinoff. It's the uh, the ass spinoff. And we're getting so many questions on like what I've been getting lots of questions in my in my DMs and stuff like what are you going to do with the shares? Because you know I'm going to get these spinoff shares. And I haven't decided quite yet, but as you know, I prefer to own the mothership and then just get exposure to everything else. But you know how much I love the asset management business. So like part of me wants to own pure play of that, but it's only 25%. So the mothership will still own 75% of the asset management business. So first feeling I get is, is, is selling it and move and reinvesting that money back into Brookfield, the corporation, because I believe, I haven't heard, listen to the call, but I believe the plan is to rename the mothership as Brookfield Corp and have the asset management business be Brookfield Asset Management. And so, uh, you know, it's recording this on a Monday off a beautiful summer weekend in Northern Ontario. So I haven't listened to the call yet, but I believe that I will hold the corporation, which holds controlling interest in, in all the different names 
I'm still benefiting from that one-time spin-off value accretion that they're going to have from spinning off the the asset management business because it's going to give investors some look through, better look through on that what that business is actually generating, which should unlock value, and as well the pure play asset managers that are publicly listed are trading at higher multiples. So that'll also unlock some value there. So that that's basically why they're doing it. Anytime they see an opportunity to one-time or long-term unlock value for shareholders, they don't hesitate whatsoever. Yeah, it's a good question. I haven't really thought about it. I mean, I like the way you're thinking, but I personally may end up selling my BAM shares, the corp shares, to buy just the asset management, just because I own mm. so much of the IP and BEP. And that would give me the three exposures I like the most. I'm not a big fan right. of their property business that they rolled up. So that's that's kind of the one part where I'm like, meh, I'm not too sure about. I'm sure they'll, they usually do smart moves and it may be worthwhile in the long run. But that's kind of the first way I'm potentially leaning is just owning the three that I really like because there are other parts of the business as well, right? In uh, Brookfield asset management or the C-Corp if they do end up changing their name. Right. Yes. No, I agree with you. I think that you know the infrastructure partners, the real estate business, and the asset manager is definitely like the jewel of the business. But that already makes up so much of the market cap that I'm like, whatever, right? It's one of those fundamental questions like, do you want to own the 10 companies in this ETF or own the ETF? Right? That's <laughs> it's right. a very similar type of thing. And honestly, right? I don't think whichever approach you take here, you can really go wrong. I agree. Now, moving on for some of our favorite news item, Elon Musk is the back. Celebrity. Yeah, exactly. Elon is back in the news. And the reason why he was back in the news was because he sold 7.92 million shares of Tesla Last week for proceeds of around $7 billion, just a bit shy than that, about $6.97 billion approximately. Of course he did $6.9 billion <laughs> in proceeds. I rounded up a what little bit. a yeah. greasy alien he is. And it was sold between August 5th and 9th. Now, Musk had previously said that he had no further plans to sell Tesla stock after he sold $8.4 billion worth in April. Well, surprise, surprise, Elon saying one thing, then changing his mind afterwards is nothing new. We've seen this script play out before. And Elon said that he sold the shares more because of the ongoing legal battle for the purchase of Twitter. He was selling in case he's forced to buy Twitter and some equity partners in the purchase don't come through. He doesn't want to have to do that as an emergency sale of the stock. Now, personally, I find that a bit funny because uh, in terms of explanation, because wouldn't there have been some risk of an equity partner not coming through even before the legal battle? I find that a bit eyebrow raising. I'll just say that as the reason why he sold some more. I mean, it, it might be the reason, but why wouldn't you have planned for that even before the legal battle is my question. And I'm pretty sure I saw him reply to another thing that was like, are you buying Tesla stock? And he's like, yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's like a net yeah. seller. And he's just like, yes. Like to this random tweet that someone added him, like, <laughs> he's like, yes, I am. Like, you know, like it, it's just... There's just no accountability for this guy at this point. I'm surprised that he would even have... Why would you have notifications on if you're him? Or he just goes <laughs> through the tweets and just sees one random I think he just, Yeah, Yeah, yeah. He just gets bored and that's what he does. Oh, boy. Of course, it was $6.9 He probably tried to do it at 4.20 p.m. And they're like, sir, the, uh, the market is going to be closed for 20 minutes at that point. He's like, oh, shoot. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're right. <laughs> That's probably what happened. All right, let's talk about Disney. I wanted to highlight Disney because I just watched a fascinating look at Walt Disney's life last week. You know, I do random, I'm just, you know, just nerd stuff, right? Let's, let's listen to this audio book on Walt Disney. And from the early days to like the success in animation, to the ambition, to nerdy, quiet guy becomes massive entrepreneur. 
And then to the ambition and imagine to build Disney World, which was like everyone in the in his life told him he was an absolute maniac for pursuing that. His risk taking was always like he was always working on distractions. Okay, you know, he'd build this like elaborate train thing in this warehouse just because he had a real passion for trains. And you'd think like, oh, what a waste of money! Like, what a waste of the the founder and CEO's time. That ended up becoming the first version of Disney World. All these like random distractions he turned into important business ventures. And it got me thinking reading, obviously this being timely because I was just like listening to this thing and then reading their earnings report today for the podcast because I was like, I'll cover Disney. And it made me think of the Disney Plus thing. And I don't give Disney enough credit not only I think that I maybe I will in the future, just given like hearing the story of Walt story of Walt Disney and how he has like spun up all these new businesses inside of the Disney Corporation, I haven't given them enough credit for their ability to spin up new ideas. And my goodness is Disney Plus a million times further than I would have expected at this time. Never in a zillion years would I have, would have guessed that achieve the scale and ramp up to where they are today as quickly as they did. When you look at revenue and operating income, revenue is up 21% year over year. Operating income was up 50%. They added almost 15 million subs to Disney Plus, bringing it to 221 million subs, which actually surpassed Netflix. This is very shocking to me. Like if you look, <laughs> if you think about that, just Really? Like how? It's very close, okay? Netflix has 220.67 million subscribers. Disney Plus has 221. So it is a rounding error between these two companies in terms of total subscribers. So call it a dead even tie for subscribers. But given to where Disney has spun this up like seemingly overnight, it is quite impressive. On that same note for Disney Plus... Keep in mind, while as as impressive as it is, I don't want to take away from that, but the average subscriber only pays $4.35 USD per month, and Netflix is $11.96. Disney Plus discloses its average revenue per sub in each region. It's actually close to around $6.25 in Canada and the US, but globally, it's $4.35. And globally for Netflix they are generating almost triple per average subscriber in revenue. So it's not it's not equal, it's not apples to apples. They're not the same, but that's not to take away from what Disney Plus has spun up here. Looking more at the results here on the segments, the media and entertainment distribution business had 11% increase on revenues and then the parks experiences and products. This has been the one that really suffered, of course, during the lockdowns and pandemic and stuff being closed. And so that is up 70%. And so that's kind of fairly in line with what we've seen from every other company reporting their second quarter for travel and leisure vacations and in-person stuff. We've seen like a flat double across the board and 70% for Disney parks was to be expected. So it's nice to see that business come alive again too. Yeah, I would suspect the parks is probably like three quarters, 80% of what it was pre-pandemic. That's what I've been kind of noticing. It's not quite back for most things. It's around that 75-80%, but it looks awesome when you just look compare it to last year because things were still quite depressed. For the Disney Plus, I mean, the one thing Disney, it was part of their strategy to price it fairly low so they would get those subscribers. So I anticipate, and I think they may have announced already some U.S. increases for their subscriptions. I anticipate that's coming. And, you know, they're doing something right. And honestly, it's not overall surprising. I think the the pace at which they achieve it is very surprising. But when you factor in the pandemic, it makes a bit more sense. And 
look, Disney has the intellectual property. That's what it is, right? A lot of yep. things that we've seen on Netflix, and Netflix has really struggled with that with some really popular shows like a Friends, for example, that was available on Netflix, then it's no longer there because the content owner decided to pull it and put it on their own platform. And you'll see a lot less of that with Disney because they own the content. Yeah. I wanted to add something here because based on what you're saying, you know, things are back at like 80%-ish. I got an anonymous message from a, well, it's not anonymous, but I'm going to keep him anonymous from a pilot on, of Air Canada. I'm not going to like share this with like his identity here on the show. He gave us this little info and he said, the reason AC is still basically operating at 80% is not like a demand issue. It's the fact that there are three major flights of Shanghai, Beijing, and Hong Kong running over three times a day on a wide-body aircraft is just not happening. And so that is a huge amount of volume that Air Canada used to serve in China. It's nice to have some of that info, right? Because that's not something you're going to see on the surface. It's something you got to actually know about the business. And so that was a Thank you for sharing that guy. But, uh, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I've taken the flight from Hong Kong straight to Toronto. No stop. I've taken that flight before. and No stop? No stop. Straight. Like it didn't stop in Vancouver? Nope. Straight. They had back about 10 years ago, a bit more than that, when I came back from Taiwan. So I flew from Taiwan to Hong Kong and then Hong Kong straight to Toronto. And lucky for me, there was, we were on the window side, so the three seats was me and the lady and someone didn't show up for their seat. So we basically used a two-edged seat and then had the middle for extra leg room. So that that's pretty good. Nice. Yeah. I did that flight from Hong Kong to Toronto, but we stopped in Vancouver. And then it was like one of those things where it's like Hong Kong Airlines did the leg to Vancouver and then WestJet did the, the next leg. We show up on that flight and somehow my cheap ass is not paying for first class flights and all of a sudden we're just placed one one and one two on the ticket i'm like what how do we have these seats we sit down it's like absolute royalty here you go and i'm like we did not pay for this. Like it's got that's probably like a four thousand dollar upgrade. Oh yeah, those tickets, like those business class tickets or first class when you go overseas, they yeah, are not overseas. Cheap. Oh, yeah. It was incredible, but I don't know how we lucked out on that. So fun story from Hong Kong to Toronto. Okay, now we'll move on to another Canadian company here. So the dual listed Noive reported its Q2 2022 earnings last week. And after they reported, the stock was really down. I can't remember the exact percentage, but I think it must have been around like 15, 20% last week. The total volume for payments increased 38% to 30 billion. Revenues increased 19% to 211 million. Gross margins were up 150 basis point to 83%. However, when you go down the line there and you start looking at the cost of revenue, which includes obviously their selling general and administrative expenses, those were up 52%. Net income for the period was down 10% to 35 million. Free cash flow was up 11% for the first six months of the year versus last year. I had a look and they had some good information in their release. They mentioned that they were negatively impacted by the strong US dollar during the quarter because they report mostly in USD. Again, something we'll be hearing a lot and we've been hearing a lot from companies that report in US but get substantial amounts of their revenues from other currencies. The US dollar has been strong compared to other currencies and we're seeing that quite a bit. I think Melly mentioned that when we talked last week about them. Now, they also revised their outlook for the rest of the year downwards due to those currency fluctuations, but also lower volume in digital assets and cryptocurrencies. They revised their revenue guidance 
13% lower than their previous ones at the beginning of the year. I use the mid-range here of both guidances to calculate it, so it's still a bracket, but just to give you an idea, it was not great. And I know some of our listeners own this stock, so if you're wondering why it was down on the earnings release, these this would be one if I would say this would be the main reason. The other reason is probably that their expenses really increase year over year, especially though it those SGNA expenses. Fifty two percent on SGNA with volume up thirty eight percent. So many of these like fast growing I gotta call them startups because they're like, you know, billion dollar public companies, but it is fascinating to see them handle this kind of like increased expense line item, revenue slowing down a bit on the growth, still growing, like still growing quite fast. But in what world you're going the wrong way, right? Yeah. Like, you're, like you're like the the path to profitability is like, okay, like keep up this operating leverage. Yeah, like this is great. At some point you reach operating leverage and we have seen it just continue to diverge in terms of, of profitability, like expenses just keep creeping up faster than, than revenue is growing. And it's like, what's got to give, man? Like it, it still seems like there's so much of this. And then you're like, ah, the share count. There it is. Yep. Oh, yeah. Found it. <laughs> got it. Like there it is. It's the share count. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, the share account, something to really keep an eye on, especially for those fast growing companies. And it's something I'll touch as well on one of the other earnings coming up after the next one that you'll talk about here, EQ Bank. EQ Bank reported, you know, the stock was down like 6% on this news. And then I watched, I looked at it, it as like, oh, just because it was slightly lower than some expectations. But the actual report I thought was pretty great. And if you are a dividend growth investor, oh my God, the the growth on the dividend is absurd. They grew at 7% quarter over quarter, which they continue to do. Like They're doing the quarter over quarter hikes. This represents a 68% growth in the dividend from just last year, which is bonkers. Like They were guiding for, you know, we're committed to 25% dividend growth year over year for the next five years, I think what they announced. And then right after that announcement, banks weren't allowed to to hike dividends. How long did that last? A year and a half, basically? Yeah. Maybe longer? That, uh, no, I think it was probably a year, year and a half. I don't think it okay. was. Yeah, I think it started maybe right around March, April and probably around yeah. like end of spring of last year, if I remember correctly. I feel like it was after Q2. I think it was a little longer. Yeah. Like I, anyways, I think yeah. you threw. Yeah. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Doesn't, yeah. So they're catching up. This is a long roundabout way of saying like they're catching up on that div growth. Adjusted net interest income was up eighteen percent. They added fifty eight thousand customers year over year. Bank deposits at EQ Bank was up sixteen percent. So that EQ Bank deposits the number that I I think is really important for a variety of reasons. Obviously, like. Yeah, there's equitable group and then there's like equitable bank and like there's all this other segments to it. But but EQ Bank's like the really like kind of the moonshot and driving so much of the of the growth at this company lately. And uh duh, they're sponsors of the show. So I mean, Simon, like that's gotta account for like an absurd amount of growth if you think about <laughs> it. Like if you just think about our reach, right? Like, wow. They almost have forty six billion in assets under management. Revenues on the top line only grew about 3.4%. So nothing super shocking, like nothing nothing amazing there, but record profitability, 15.6% adjusted return on equity, which is really good for this bank. Like 15.6% ROEs is wonderful. I mentioned the dividend growth. Dude, their IR page, you look at the quarterly results for a company, it's like a bunch of bullet points and you're like, yeah. yes, oh, give yeah. me Yes, give me the goods. Yes, yes. Okay, yep, I need this number. EQ Bank has like 400 bullet points, like legit, oh, wow. like 100 <laughs> bullet points of just every single from the like CET1 ratio, ROE, like yeah. non-adjusted ROE. Like it is so many numbers. IR at EQ Bank, 
simplify this for me, man. Like I don't can't look at 450 numbers. It's ridiculous, especially because banks are confusing enough already. Yeah, JP Morgan is always a bit like that too. They have like these tables with all these different ratios kind of lined up in their earnings release. Like you just said, banks can get pretty complex. I always find it a bit mind-numbing to read those, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, this is the most boring earnings release of all time. No, but EQ Bank, I mean, it's EQB, Equitable Groups, the actual company. It's very impressive story out of Canada here. Yeah, some exciting product stuff coming too. Now, uh, moving on to the next name on the list, another Canadian listed. I believe this one is dual listed, if I remember correctly. So, Ut8 Mining Corporation. Don't be fooled by the name for those who are not familiar. It's not a traditional mining company. It is a Bitcoin mining company. Now, revenues increased 31% to $44 million. The company mined 946 Bitcoin during the quarter, an increase of 71%. The increase was primarily due to an increase in hash rate, also known for those not familiar with the term as computing power, to solve these problems that are very intensive. Those came from new mining rigs that they received during the quarter. The cost of revenue exceeded their revenues, which is not surprising since the price of Bitcoin last year was much higher than this year's during the same reporting period. They had a net loss of $88 million, which was 20 times greater than last year. They were free cash flow negative to the tune of $157 million, which was 280% more than last year. Now, this is more a result of having more computing power than anything else because they have higher expenses. That's because of Ud hate strategy. They will always be free cash flow negative even if the price of Bitcoin shoots way up. That's because their expenses are in dollars and they keep Bitcoin on their balance sheet and sell very few of them. So don't be surprised if you see that. If you wanted a deeper dive, you can go back to our epi- one of our episodes last October. October and November, I think we released it, where I go into the business and a bit more how it works. So those of you interested, you can go back to that episode. Now, for that reason, you should always look at their assets when evaluating their financial results. For most companies, I think when there's earnings release, I think you're probably like that too, uh, Brayden. You know, I'll be familiar with their assets already. So I'll usually just have a quick look at it just to make sure nothing like crazy has changed. Their balance sheet is their income statement. Pretty much, yeah, company. that's a great way. Like, kind yeah. of. Mm-hmm. It should be one of the first things you looked at. So, obviously, assets, it wasn't great for the quarter here. Cash was down 57% to $60 million compared to last year. And the value of their digital assets on their balance sheet, mostly Bitcoin, of course, was down 42% to $188 million. Now, the good news is the company has all its Bitcoin in custody and none of them in outstanding lending agreement like we've seen some companies go bankrupt or be in real difficulty in the past couple of months. Now, a couple of things I wanted to touch on quickly. First, if you're a shareholder, you're most likely going to get some dilution coming in the upcoming quarters. That's because if you're thinking about the cash I just mentioned, down 57%. So they will need to get some cash one way or, or another. And in the past, their strategy has been to issue shares because they've been very reluctant to sell Bitcoin. Not sure what they will do this time around because their share price is much, much lower. So it would dilute quite a bit more. But clearly, not a great quarter here. But if you own HUT8 or are interested in investing in them, you have to be aware that this company will go as far as the price of Bitcoin will go. I'm trying to like, while you're saying this, it's not a name like I follow particularly well. But whenever you talk about it, my mind's always like racing about the unit economics and like how they fund it. And it's like, it's kind of fascinating. And and like an accounting way, it's kind of fascinating, right? And Part of me is like, because of hash rates, they mined 71% more Bitcoin this quarter than they did the previous quarter. And those hash rates will go up with the price going down. They act propor- inversely proportional, right? Because uh, of the unit economics of mining Bitcoin? Not that, necessarily. Based- so I actually, I my predisposition was thinking the same way as you. I actually looked at the mining difficulty and it's actually 
been steadily going up. Oh, it so, has. Yeah, it has. Okay. So last year we saw a big drop because China, the move away from China, oh, that was one right. of the big reasons. And it doesn't I, go inversely proportional to the price? Like, that's what I would have thought. In theory, I guess. But the reason is the computers are getting better and better. And I think mm. it's just over time, the technology just kind of keeps up with it. I would okay. assume that's the reason why. Yeah. Okay. Well, scratch the thought I was about I to say. I had the same I idea. That. I actually had to look <laughs> at it because I had the same reasoning. I'm like, oh, for sure. They actually Because yeah. 71's a lot, right? Like yeah. that's, that's a big jump. Mm-hmm. But it was basically they had deliveries of new uh, machines, uh, a lot of okay. them. That's why. And they were more efficient. Yeah. Okay. So, yes, I'm looking at this and I'm going, well, they should be quite resilient to the price because they don't sell it. It's not a big deal until you realize that it just moves the price of the actual stock moves with with the price of Bitcoin. And that is how they fund the business. The price of the stock really, really matters because it is how they actually finance the business through dilution. And if the stock is trading way lower and they need to raise the same amount of money, you do the math, you have severe dilution, as you mentioned. So it's like a bit of a catch-22 there on the economics of how they actually finance this thing. Yeah, exactly. And anyone interested, listen to their earnings call. Their CEO, she's very impressive. She knows what she's doing. So very worthwhile listening to. Jamie Leverton, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Let's talk about the trade desk. Speaking of fascinating CEOs, I Jeff Green is a freaking wizard. The founder of the business. You know, you know I love founder-led public companies and the trade desk is an, is an option there. Okay. So in software, so we're talking about the trade desk, ticker TTD. So in software, you have this thing called the rule of 40. Okay. It's basically you want your revenue growth plus EBITDA margin to be above 40 or at least close, right? And so a perfect example, like let's do an example here, okay? 22% revenue growth. I have some some cool company. I achieved 22% revenue growth and 24% EBITDA margins. I would have a rule of 40 of 46. So 46 is good. This passes the, the rule of 40 test. Now, the trade desk is a unique animal. You have a fast-growing technology business that has been run profitably since 2013. It's been profitable its entire time as a public company and has always generated free cash flow. Revenue for the trade desk in this recent quarter grew at 35% with a 37% EBITDA margin, which is quite fantastic profitability. This gives you 72, okay? That is like a bit of an outlier. Like you don't you don't usually have that level of growth and that level of profitability. Like it's just it's just not that common, really. It's really not. So this company's been profitable since 2013, which I said. Now, this is a small position for me. It's one of my smallest positions I own of any individual securities. But it became a little bit larger last week when the stock jumped 36% in one day when these results came out. Customer attention again exceeded 95%. Jeff Green is an absolute wizard. Highly recommend just listening to him. He even does like YouTube videos. They have this cool explainer series on YouTube, explain in human terms or something, which is basically explaining the complex technology of their ad business and explaining it to me like I'm a five-year-old. And it's great if you're not used to understanding like how the auction works for like live bidding for ad space on the internet. And I mean, who really is familiar with that stuff? So thank you for for making those videos, Jeff. They are building a unique competitive advantage in connected TV. This has been a gigantic growth channel for them. Here's a quote from Jeff. First, there is a secular tailwind that continues to propel us forward. And that's the worldwide shift to advertising-fueled connected television. I don't know that we've ever experienced a secular tailwind like this before. Connected TV is moving faster and evolving faster than anyone predicted. And if we continue to execute, I believe we will benefit as much as any company in the world from this tailwind. So, I mean, look 
at how much connected TV has evolved in the past five years. Look how much it evolved during the pandemic. And now look how it's evolving with these streaming platforms pivoting to a ad-supported model as well. I watched just in preparation for this, like I didn't expect to stumble upon it, but I saw a video in an interview with Jeff Green and this video was done in 2020. And he said, I know that there are like subscriber supported video TV content out there today, like the Netflixes of the world. He goes, historically, television has been 95% or more supported by ads. The whole, like the whole business model is a media advertising business. You know, like you're watching the NFL game and then all of a sudden there's six commercials roll through. He said, I predict that it will be more than 95% moving forward, even despite these services. You look what's happening now, they're all moving ad supported. And I, I just like seeing those little tidbits of like, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. And he's so confident to say that like, I don't believe what they're doing is sustainable. I mean, he was right pretty much, right? Like he's right. Yeah, I think he's a bit ambitious for the 95% because if I had to pick for a lot of the services I have, like I'll, as long as it's reasonable, I'll pay up for no ads. That's just the way I'm in. And I think you're going to get those too. But I think there's a lot of people, especially, you know, we talk about CPI at the beginning, Costs are rising. If you can keep your subscription and reduce the cost by half, say, why not do it if you're looking to save money? Like if you're willing to go take a little pee break while they're doing the ads, might as well, yeah. right? Yeah. I hear what you're saying. I mean, you're in a higher snack bracket than you know the global population for sure. Look at YouTube, right? Like how many people just put up with the ads versus paying? Everyone I say knows that you and can I for put up for premium. the ads with YouTube. Yeah, for YouTube Premium, you just yeah. you just soak the ads. Like you yeah. don't pay the ten bucks or whatever it is. You know where I'm coming from? Like there's no, there's no, levels to this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. we'll see what happens. It's still TBD, but obviously a great quarter for the company. Smashed expectations, and the market seemed to like it as well. Yeah, that's definitely another, like the other advertisement play that I'd be the most interested on. And after having sold uh, Pinterest, I find that uh, Trade Desk and Google are really both in really good position. And it's funny because the ad space, the social media ad space, however you want to call it, right? The internet ad space, it's been very kind of all over the place in terms of results. We've seen some some good, some bad, and some really ugly results. So it's uh, interesting to see that Google and the Trade Desk, I think they're the two that really stick out as on the good side. Very high quality, for sure. Now, moving on to the last name here, we referenced it at the beginning here, Cineplex. So I wanted to do this because it is a Canadian company and it's one of the most affected, I think, in terms of publicly listed businesses, the ones that were affected by the pandemic and various lockdowns and restrictions. Now, I'll reference both year-over-year revenues and 2019 revenues, since I think it's the better indicator in a lot of cases. And it's too bad, but clearly they did not reference the 2019 revenues in their earnings release. So I had to go and look at the financial statements and actually compare them and do the calculations myself. Now, revenues... We appreciate that because if you just look at their press release, it it was not useful. Yeah, it looks (laughs) great. Yeah, it looks great. But so revenues increased 439% to 350 million year over year. Again, you may look at this and say, wow, you know, if you're coming out of a coma. Whoa, yeah. 440%. Wow, holy If you're smokes. coming out of like a, you know, a year and a half coma, you're probably, or you have no idea the pandemic happened. You're, hey, this is, this is really good numbers right there. But then you look at 2019 and that number is still 20% down. Now, the theater attendance, I wasn't able to find the figures for 2019, but I think this one's a good indicator. So people are returning to the movies. It was nine times higher than it was year over year. They made $1 million in net income compared to a loss of $103 million last year. For comparison, net income was $25 million in 2019. So they're still behind that. Their expenses as a percentage of their total revenues are still much higher. 
they generated free cash flow of 20 million for the first six months versus free cash flow negative of 32 million last year for the same period. Now, compared to 2019, free cash flow is still down 65% to those numbers. Now, this one feels really similar in a lot of ways to Air Canada, like we discussed last week. Numbers are impressive when looking at year over year, but it's still about three quarters, 80% of what they were in 2019 in terms of sales. That's why I mentioned it on Disney, because it seems to be the trend here. They are trending in the right direction, but clearly they need to get a hold of expenses, which are extremely high. Not a company I would own personally, but I find really interesting these type of companies, even like just for case studies to see how quickly they'll recover from the pandemic. And maybe it's going to take them a few years to get back at those levels because, you know, I know you are. I know I am like I'm very comfortable going in public with other people. I don't have any issue. It took me a little bit of time after the restrictions started to come down, but now I'm all good. But you know, we've said it before, not everyone has the same comfort level. I've been to a couple of movies since they reopened in the, since the beginning of this year. It was great to be there in person where I'm actually watching something and not distracted by my phone. So it was, yeah. yeah. And obviously the, the popcorn was awesome too. Just load up the butter. Do you just dump the whole, well, the whole brick <laughs> of butter and just throw it on there we did so the first time we went the masks were still required so we're talking to the girl and i didn't hear because i could it was pretty loud i couldn't like tell what she said and she asked their lips it's like exactly so she asked if we wanted layered butter i didn't hear her but my wife heard her and she's like oh yeah that was too much. That was too much for me. The, oh, the layered. Dude, yeah. yeah give yeah. me that. For like a dollar extra, I think. And so they like put half. Give me that. They butter it. Butter. Then they put yeah. another half and they butter it again. <laughs> it was too much, man. It's just too uh, much And the stuff at the bottom's like soaked. It's like soggy with oh, butter. Yeah. And I love it. So soggy throughout. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I finished the whole thing before the previews end anyways. So... For the most part, I think people are fully comfortable with it. I just, at this point, if it's at, what did you say? Revenues, uh, 20% down. Okay. So 80% of what they want. 80% of the revs from 2019. Okay. How much of that? I predict most of it. This is just me. I mean, I don't know. I'm the movie business, but I predict most of it is an actual shift away, a secular shift away from people going to the movies as much. This was already an ongoing trend. I think, you know, what what if we normalize here? I think that that's totally in the realm of outcome. Maybe 85% of of what it was before. I wouldn't be shocked. In fact, I would think that that maybe is where it normalizes. And people who love the movies are going to keep going to the movies. But people who like, you know, it was a every once in a while thing. Maybe they just don't go anymore at all, you know? Like maybe they just watch at home. I think that we normalize somewhere below 19 is what I predict. Yeah, I mean, it could very well be. And their actual revenues are probably more like 75% if we use constant dollar basis. Because let's be honest, like I don't remember what the prices were in 2019, but I'm going to go on a limb and say they're slightly higher right now. True, yeah. Yeah. Think about Mm -hmm. the flex pricing power as well. Have you done the VIP thing, by the way? Yeah, yeah, we've done it. It's pretty fun. Yeah, you can get like beer or yeah, whatever yeah. a drink. And it's pretty, and it's most, it's more comfortable too. The seats are better, at least the one near us. For me, I, I look at that and I'm like, if I'm gonna go to the movies, I will spend double. It's already like not cheap to buy a ticket if it's like 3D or whatever. Just give me double. So I can sit in that comfy ass chair and drink some beers. Hey, like, I'm all in on that. Like I love that. that yeah, is, get that a little is, buzz going and enjoy the movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> Especially if it's a comedy, man. Like it's gonna yeah. be even better. Mm-hmm. So I'm all in on that. And I don't again, I'm assuming average ticket prices have exploded for them on a skew basis because of that. Because of that, like what they're offering to people who want to make it a more fancy date night. Yeah, yeah, just an experience, right? Yeah. Yeah, and if they really want to lean into that, I think that that's smart because we've seen 
even if there is a tougher macro environment, people are still really, really leaning into experiences. I don't see that big shift changing anytime soon. Like I, th- I think that that's here to stay for a little while, like experiences over stuff, especially with young people. Oh, yeah. Especially yeah. with mm-hmm. young people. They're inspired by that stuff. Yeah, just uh, maybe not every earnings season will do them, but maybe once every two quarters or something, just have a look how it's trending. It's going to be an interesting just study, case study to have a look at. Speaking of the movies, do people still bid up uh, AMC? Is that still like some meme stock here? The stock's up like 73% since July. (laughs) Oh my God, this thing peaked at 60 USD in June of 2021. It is a third of that today. Yeah, that's what Buy happens. When you try to chase meme stocks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If uh, if you want to gamble on meme stocks, you may get lucky, or you might lose your shirt. Yeah, yeah. The stock market casino is alive and well year over year, and so that was uh, that was definitely one people are using. Thank you so much for listening to the episode, uh, Simon. I'm just glad we made it through to the end. I thought you were going to be like, dude. I'm having a baby. My wife's having a baby. We're going right now. We're we're off to the... We've done the prenatal class. So there's usually, it's not a switch like that. So there's usually okay. build up. So I think we'd have probably a couple hours at the very least because they won't take okay. you right away. You have to be at a certain stage until you actually, you go into the hospital. <laughs> yeah, so, but could yeah. you imagine? Um, sorry, honey. Yeah. I am recording a podcast. Like, I don't know if you know yeah. or a big deal. That wouldn't happen. So, <laughs> if you have something to wish for us, is that we're lucky and there are some available private rooms. That would hey. be the one thing because I don't know if everyone saw the Friends episode with like Rachel when she gives birth and there's like five different women that come in. One of them, yeah, including uh, his ex Janice or uh, no, <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, it's so awkward. The ex comes in. Oh boy. Thanks so much for listening to the Canadian Investor Podcast. If you are a real estate investor or you're looking to get into real estate, have you checked out the Canadian Real Estate Investor? That is another podcast we've tucked in under our network of the Canadian Investor Podcast goodness. So get that in your in your listening queue if you're into real estate. They just did an episode on like a 25-point checklist to do before you like buy a property, like 25 things to look at when you're investing in real estate. And hello, like that is perfect for me. Like that's yeah. just like exactly what I need to hear. So it's been great to hear uh, hear the, some of that stuff because it's something I don't, like I'm not qualified to run the Canadian investor, Canadian real estate investor oh, no. podcast. Me neither, yeah. But those guys are. And so that's why you should tune in as the Canadian real estate investor. They'll probably do a dive too. Uh, I didn't have a chance to look at them today because they just came out. But the Canadian Real Estate Association numbers, I believe the most recent one just got released. And they go over those a bit like we do the earnings release on a regular basis. So they dig into them. So they'll do a much better job than I could, even though they told me I actually did a pretty good job when we went over them in the past, they will go into those. So if you're looking to know where it's at right now, just give them a listen. Probably in the next episode, they'll go over that next episode or two. It is a beautiful thing. If you haven't checked out stratosphere.io, go check it out. We got a nice, nice looking new can of paint on the webpage too. Just trying to optimize it. You know, you like, you go on and you're like, who's this for? And we want to convince you within the first six seconds that it's for you. Because if you're an investor in individual securities, you got to know the business and you got to know the financials. And we break it down for you on a historical basis. That is stratosphere.io. Go ahead and check that out. It's free to use it. Take care, guys. We'll see you in a few days. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.